So if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Matthew chapter 5. And one of the things that I've enjoyed, uh, you know, we, before we were at Gravitate, we were at a small little um, black box theater here in Des Moines called Come and Go. And I was really into like hearing the Bible being flipped. So this is just a little call out. If you have a physical Bible, I know it's like a, a thing you have to take it with you and you're like, gosh, I think I have like 12 in my house and seven different translations. Which one do you want me to bring? your preference. Uh, but if you have a physical Bible, you are more than welcome to bring that. And we actually use it here. It's, it's novel, I know. Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, and today we continue to work through kind of this preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, what's known to history as the Beatitudes. And uh, something I want us to situate ourselves in is the scene, because the Beatitudes are not a collection of pithy statements or, I don't know, tweetable remarks from Jesus, but there's an actual context, and the context is this. So if you look just to your left in Matthew 4, we read this in Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Verse 25, large crowds from the Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So if you're tracking with that, what you see is that Jesus comes on the scene, he begins preaching, and in the midst of his preaching, some people come to him. And as Jesus is engaging with them, they don't just hear words of authority, they actually encounter the power of God that yields healing. And then the word, like in our vernacular, we say, oh, he goes viral. And all these people then start coming to him. And, and what, what do we see here at the end of verse 24? What did Jesus do? healed them. You might, every once in a while, I'll ask a question, and it won't be rhetorical, so then you can participate. And we're learning this. I still am as well. Uh, but Jesus healed them, so the word spreads, and now these large crowds are thronging about Jesus. And so it's there. Among really, like, the who's who's of the dispossessed and the oppressed, the marginalized, it's there. Then that Jesus begins, I don't know, shaking things up a bit with the Beatitudes, he starts talking about kind of the economy of God's kingdom, and, and this is where we have these little statements in our, last, or in our mind of the last will be first. That's kind of like this core ethic that comes out of Jesus in the Beatitudes. And not only then in this scenario is Jesus his, like surrounded with the historically sidelined people, but Jesus is then moving toward them. So it's not just that they're there interested in Jesus. Jesus is actually interested in them. He begins speaking to them. And he goes so far as to actually center them in the economy of God. And we, we may not feel how intense this is, but it is. And my hope is, is that as we hear Jesus' word for us today, that we, we would actually begin to feel that. Because Jesus' words are potent and they are subversive if we will let them in to have their full effect on us. This is participatory act where we go, okay, Jesus, what are you saying here? And then we sit with it. And so we're going to sit with this, and we're also going to respond to it. So I know that most of you just got comfy, but if you're willing or able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? 
And if you're like in, a, in your spot, like column two, comfy, just extending a hand forward because this is about responding to God's word as though it can actually move us. So you just stood up and this is a way of us just continuing to integrate that God's word actually has a way of moving us. So this is our teaching text today, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Why don't you uh, read that together with me? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So in the 1960s and 70s, uh, Gustavo... Gutierrez came on the scene and uh, made a bit of a splash. He came on the theological scene, to be specific, and you may have not known that there was such a thing as a theological scene. Well, there is. It's very niche, Uh, but Gustavo comes on that theological scene, and he makes a splash, and this is after he grew up in a Peruvian slum, and then he made his way forward through education, first in medicine, then in philosophy, and eventually through ministry in the Catholic Church. And his um, famous work, it's called A Theology of Liberation. And this work, A Theology of Liberation, sparked a movement kind of by the same title called Liberation Theology. And you may or may not have heard of this and you may or may not have opinions about it, but his point was, was simply this, that if you look for justice in the world generally, you will find a, a whole lot of expressions. But if you look for justice in the Bible, disproportionately you will find the God of the Bible moving toward the oppressed, toward the poor and the vulnerable. And he kind of builds on this to where we have this little statement where we say, liberation theology essentially claims that a preferential concern for the poor, and that's kind of his statement, preferential concern for the poor is essential for the gospel. And I don't know if this grates against your spirit or you've been so shaped by your political theories and and preferences that this, like, that's your first reaction. Recognize those. Those are real. And now let's allow Jesus to like go to work on those things. Because I don't think that this means disregarding fairness in favor of the poor. This is more like if there are poor and there are marginalized and oppressed people and they are left behind in a community's vision of what flourishing is, then that community cannot be called a just community. Even and especially for a Christian community, if there are marginalized or poor or oppressed people, and a Christian community leaves them behind in their vision of flourishing, that community cannot be called a just community. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, I am convinced that Jesus is simultaneously affirming God's movement toward the vulnerable and inviting others to join the movement, essentially inviting you and me to do the same. And I'm going to actually try and convince us of this today. (laughs) And I may not, and that's okay. We can chat more about it later. But here's what we have. For for some practicing Christians, what I just said feels like a sigh. Like you were like, ah, yes, yes. This is a yes in a moment. To hear Jesus talking about this and to hear this, like Jesus' Beatitudes um, uh, uh, and Gustavo Gutierrez, like I never thought I'd heard about a Catholic theologian at church. This is amazing. So it's a yes and amen moment for you, but for other practicing Christians, and hear that, practicing Christians, people who genuinely and sincerely follow Jesus, this is a yes but moment. 
What, what do I mean? What's the distinction between yes and amen and yes, but it's yes. Jesus is moving toward the vulnerable. I see that. It's, it, you just showed, you showed me Matthew 4, 23. It's there, like, there they are. The vulnerable are there. Okay, I'll grant you that. But Jesus never says justice here, dude. And you, I, I'm, I guess dude is how I imagine myself. Jesus never said justice. So what does justice have to do with righteousness? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Because the Bible of Jesus' day, justice and righteousness are not two, but they're often thought of as one. And to see this, I just invite you, go with me to the prophet Jeremiah. If you like, kind of flip open to the middle-ish of your Bible and you find yourself in the Psalms, you go to the right a little bit and you'll, you'll find in the major prophets Jeremiah. Or you can just tap your way to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah is a prophet kind of warning. He's coming with a message of warning and a message of hope to the people of Israel. His his message of warning is like, you have abandoned God. He picks up language of adultery, some pretty intense, like promiscuous language. He says, this is you. And yet God has been faithful and he's inviting you back. So it's a message of warning and a message of hope. It's this collection of collections and anthology of stories about judgment and hope. And we read this poem in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It says this. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. In other words... If you think, if we think that influence and power and wealth are the most valuable things that you can pursue, those will like shape what you're confident in. If, if influence and, val- and, and power and wealth become your ultimate end or purpose, and it may not be explicit, but if you start to evaluate your bank account or, I don't know, like you may feel this when um, you get a call from your bank and they go, there's been some fraudulent activity on your, like what happens inside? Is it, is it panic? That's like a signal to maybe where your ultimate allegiance is. And, and Jeremiah is touching on that signal that's saying, uh-oh, Because he's saying that if that's where your ultimate confidence is, then you're exposed as a fool. You're fooling yourself if you actually say that you know God because the two, they don't actually hold together. Because knowing your creator means knowing the God who exercises justice and righteousness. Those are actually things that the living God delights in. And the point is that justice and righteousness, they are fundamentally relational and restorative concepts and terms and frameworks and themes. They are fundamentally relational and restorative. So what about Jesus then? Well, when Jesus starts talking about righteousness, I think this is the vision of righteousness that he has in mind. And we'll get more to a concrete definition in a second. Hold with me if you're a note taker. But when Jesus talks about righteousness, I'm convinced that that Jesus has his Bible in mind. He doesn't have a primarily judicial view, which is like, okay, I've been declared righteous, now I'm in this right state. But no, no, it's it's about that plus this relational and restorative framework. Because justice and righteousness, they're not disconnected concepts. 
They're actually companions in the Hebrew imagination. And we, we have two words that we use in the English language, but in the Hebrew Bible, these, this actually works as it's 50 plus times. It's a fixed phrase, justice and righteousness, mishpat and tzedakah. Try those on, mishpat and tzedakah. That's nice. You don't have to clear your throat or anything for those. Those are great. So when Jesus starts talking about righteousness, he has in his mind, his Bible, where these two realities are joined together as a fixed phrase. And we actually see this right at the beginning of Israel's story. This doesn't really get a lot of hype, but this is a beautiful place. In Genesis chapter 18, you can flip or tap your way on over there if you'd like. Genesis chapter 18 is right in this moment where God has, in six chapters before this, he's called this person named Abram. And he's called Abram out of the host of nations to uniquely bless this person and his family, not so that blessing could reside there, but so that through Abraham's family, blessing would be poured out on all of the nations, so that God would be known as one who blesses and, and is faithful to do so. And then we get this little interior dialogue. It's almost like a window into how God speaks. This is Genesis eighteen nineteen. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And how do you do that? By doing righteousness and justice. And I totally get that do righteousness, I don't know, maybe it doesn't sound, it sounds more like an advertising slogan or something like that. But do righteousness is it, an awkward turn of phrase. But, but notice this connection, and I just hinted at it. What does it mean to keep the way of the Lord? It's right there after it. What does it mean to keep the way of the Lord? Do righteousness and justice, yes. See, the living God desires Abraham and his family thereafter to actually model and embody this restorative and relational reality. This is, this is beautiful and kind of scary. God essentially entrusts God's project of renewal to this family. By the way, how does it go? It goes poorly to quite poorly, yes. And yet, nevertheless, God extends this invitation to do righteousness and, and justice, this idea of right side upping all things. And this is, as much as we hear about it and as, it is, as much as it's kind of in the ether, like justice is an intensely biblical imperative because it is this divine impulse. God's desire is actually to right side up all of the wrong things. And we see it right here through Abraham and this desire to join with humanity once again to set all the wrong things right. I love this. There's this uh, Hebrew Bible scholar. He's Israeli. His name's Moshe Weinfield. It's just the quintessential... Israeli name. And Moshe, he captures this idea of God desiring to set all the wrong things right. And he looks at this fixed phrase of righteousness and justice. And in, he talks about it as righteous justice, but he says there's a better phrase, a way that we could hear it that makes sense to our ears. He calls it social justice. How does that sound? Maybe some thumbs up, maybe some questions. See, oddly enough, the church, like, and maybe even in this church, you say social justice and all of these ideas populate in your mind. Well, what do you mean by that? Is that a, a political agenda? Kind of. Is it a philosophy? I don't know. I'm not a philosopher. But, but, but nevertheless, if, 
it does this thing to us. Maybe there's apprehension, maybe there's repulsion at worst, but social justice does something to us. So just try thinking about social justice like this. Let's just get at it simply. God is both social and just. Let me unpack that. God is a community of self-giving love. God is a society. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, community of eternal love. God is a society. And God delights to participate in creation, to extend that society or community of love to and with his creation, creating a society. And God is also just. That is, God lives and abides by his word in keeping with what's good. So God establishes this right side up place and then has a community to join him in bringing this about. How are we doing with that? God is both social and just. And the Bible bears witness to this. And we'll, we'll see how this sounds in a moment. But I love um, how New Testament scholar Tim Gombas puts this. This is, this is fantastic. Uh, he says, the Christian Bible is a collection of social media about justice, which is just fantastic. Um, it's made up of media, letters, gospels, apocalypses, narratives, poetic works, in which we hear from God about how to conduct ourselves in this socially just order into which we have been baptized. So just pr press pause here on Jesus talking about justice. And if you have been baptized, that is if you, maybe you were sprinkled when you were young or you have gone under the waters, this is a symbolic move in the community of Jesus whereby we join him in his death to say that we have died to death and that we rise with him in the power of God to newness of life. So even though we and ourselves will surely die, we are secure in the face of death. So if you've been, if you've been baptized, let me, just, let me just say, there is resurrection hope for you. This is the beautiful reality of Jesus. And what Gombas does is he ties our conduct to our baptism. And this is, this is critical. I, I can't overemphasize this. It is a public act of allegiance and declaration of my unity with Jesus to enter into the baptismal waters and to say, I am joined with him in new life so that I can live a new type of life by the power of Jesus. And if we were a little bit charismatic, we'd be going, yes, and amen. There would be some hooping, some hollering, because this is the gospel. So let's just try this on again with Moshe in our ears. Hear Genesis 18. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing social justice. Let's, let's take it to today in our teaching text. What about Jesus' words? How do you like this? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for social justice, for they will be filled. Ooh. I... I may sound kind of snarky in some of these statements. This, um, I was sharing when we were doing our pre-gathering prayer, like this makes me extra sweaty. <laughs> because somehow the social and just God who joins in the project of social justice with creation, like somehow that can be an inflammatory statement in the church. And if that does feel too inflammatory, just inflammatory, just try this on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. See, the point stands that when Jesus says righteousness, some idea of reconciliation, restorative and relational realities are to come to the fore of our mind. 
Because righteousness is about how we relate to injustice in our community. If you're taking notes, there's your definition. Righteousness is about how we relate to injustice in our community. And it's also about how we relate to the vulnerable in our community. How we relate to injustice and how we relate to the vulnerable. And I think that this is more intuitive than, I don't know, than we may think. We, we say things like this, or maybe you read it in a novel. I said this to Jessica, and she's like, I don't say that. You don't say that. I don't hear people say this. So I could be wrong. I'm thinking that some people in this room may have at one point said, you've done right by me. Has anybody ever said that? Oh, praise Jesus. One or two people have said that. Thank you. I think you get what someone hypothetically may mean if they said, oh, you've done right by me. It's as though we're recognizing that they've honored us. They've honored us in our circumstances. They've seen us in our pain. And then this is key, they've not looked away. They've actually allowed that thing to be whatever that thing is, as terrible as it may be, and then they join us in it. You've done right by me. And I love how Esau Macaulay, and this is just a wink and a nod to what we'll encounter in the forthcoming weeks after February 20. Uh, and this is, uh, he unpacks this. This is a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth it, so uh, tuck in. Hungering and thirsting for justice is nothing less than the continued longing for God to come and set things right. It's worth reading again. Hungering and thirsting for justice is nothing less than the continued longing for God to come and set things right. It is a vision of the just society established by God that does not waver in the face of evidence to the contrary. Mourning is not enough. We must have a vision for something different. Justice is that difference. Jesus then calls for a reconfiguration of the imagination in which we realize that the options presented to us by the world are not all that there is. There remains a better way, and that better way is the kingdom of God. He wants us to see that his kingdom is something that is possible, at least as a foretaste, even while we wait for its full consummation, to hunger for justice, or you could say to hunger for social justice, is to hope that the things that cause us to mourn will not get the last word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for social justice, for they will be satisfied. I think one of the difficulties of that expression, social justice, is that not everyone agrees on the term itself or how to use it. But what if we allowed the biblical witness, what if we allowed the stories of the scriptures to reshape our imagination? And not to wipe the slate clean, that's a fool's errand but to allow Jesus to meet us where we are and to invite us into something that might feel uncomfortable. And I think we actually get a picture of this. Let's just try this on. Think back with me to that poem in Jeremiah. You can even flip there if you're like one of those, I don't know, this is like the sword challenge or something. I didn't do VBS stuff, but Jeremiah chapter nine. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. By the way, are those things that are evil? I, I don't think so. In fact, 
Proverbs 8 gives you this picture of lady wisdom, a gift from God who is with God in creation. I mean, so wisdom is, is a beautiful thing. S strength, this isn't like how much you can bench press or something like this. This, this has this idea of power. And, and, and power when held correctly, that we are not held by the grips of power, but we hold power and then release it to enrich the lives of others can be a beautiful thing. Riches, too, can do the same thing. But let's check this out. Verse 24, but the one who boasts, boasts about this that they know what delights the Lord, justice and righteousness. In other words, let them boast in the God who delights in social justice. And so this morning, like if your heart, or just allow this to work on you, if your heart and your imagination is captured by wealth, like if, if you are preoccupied, this is how I've kind of determined this, is, is, at least as an indicator of my life. When I become preoccupied by something, that is, I'm like constantly thinking about it. Like, oh, do we get a house here? What do we do? Oh, what about that? It's like, it becomes all consuming. That could very well be for you an indicator that that thing is starting to take ground in your heart or imagination as of utmost significance. So if your heart or imagination is captured or gives significance that, it, that these things aren't due, then social justice, I think, does stand as a threat. But I think it's a good threat. Like, it doesn't have to be a dangerous thing because this might sound silly, but I, I just don't know if boasting and wisdom and strength and riches is going to give us the life that we desire. Like a life that can look death in the face with hope. Because ultimately, you know, when we talked about baptism, that's what you do in your baptism is you say, no, I am secure in Jesus' life that has been vindicated by the living God. That is my utmost security. See, it makes sense then why Jesus' first words that he would preach in the gospel according to Matthew, words that um, go before the scene in Matthew 4.23. In fact, if you look in Matthew 4.17, you're gonna see it like this. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrased it. He says, Change your mind. God's kingdom is here. I, I don't know. This could be totally off the mark, but there may be a chance that some in our community, myself included, we need to change our mind about, about something that we think gives us a life that we actually have a desire for that's not satisfying us. Because if you see at the end of Jesus' words, he talks about will be satisfied. It is a future thing. It is coming. And it's not just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm full. It is like you are full. You're essentially, you know when you eat too much? It's that. You're like, you're, you're a glutton for this reality. And it, you are just full to abundance. It's overflowing more than you need. Jesus is saying, change your life. God's kingdom is here. What does it look like to be the type of people who participate in God's kingdom? You have an insatiable appetite for this right relationship, right restoration dynamic called the kingdom. And I hope that this sounds redundant. I hope that this sounds elementary because this is at like the beginning place of the gospel. By the way, we're not even in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> These are the Beatitudes. Because the surprising message of the biblical story, and we're coming to a close here, is that God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice 
is to give us the gift of social justice. It's actually to give us the gift of social justice in the life of Jesus. So God responds to injustice not by going and killing everybody who does injustice or participates in injustice, but he rather allows all of that injustice to come to bear. And God then allows the evil and the hurt and all of that to consume him. And in Jesus, God's love and justice are then perfectly fulfilled. Evil does not go unpunished. Instead, it is put to death in Jesus' death. And in the power of God, death dies in Jesus' death because Jesus rises from the dead. This is the hope of the Christian. And the Beatitudes are pointing us toward that hope, th this desire for a new type of appetite. This is, this is drawing us into a new way of being in the world because righteousness is not primarily a theological status, though it is that. And righteousness is not primarily about who is in and who is out, like boundary markers in a community, though it does have aspects of that. Righteousness is primarily about this power to live in the new way of God that joins God in the renewal of all things. And church, this invitation is extended to us. Yes, some of you have a temperament and like, I don't know, maybe you're an eight on the Enneagram if that means anything to you and you see injustice in the world and you are enraged and you have to do something to rectify that injustice. And we are so grateful you are part of this community. You spur us on. And yet it's not yours alone to carry. I, I think what often gets missed in this conversation, and we won't have time to flesh this out, we're gonna talk about mercy this next week and we're gonna flesh a little bit of it out there. But it's like, how, how does Jesus do this? Because Jesus will eventually embody the realities of the Beatitudes. So how does Jesus do this? Is Jesus, well, it's like, oh, it's just Jesus. He's God, of course. Well, we see this interesting scene before Jesus comes on and preaches and tells everyone to change their mind for God's kingdom is here. Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tested Jesus is driven into a place of utmost dependence on the Spirit of God. So do you want to know how social justice will actually come to bear for the fruit of renewal? By the power of the Spirit. And I'm not talking about like the charismatic gifts per se. I'm talking about the life of God filling the people of God so they can display the justice of God. And may we actually learn to be these types of people. The challenge is, is it's not a reality yet. But we get to live as these little signposts pointing forward to an ult ultimate hope. It's like a signpost, as N.T. Wright would say, pointing into the fog. Like you don't know what's ahead, but our lives can display something beautiful. Mm -hmm.